Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Invisible Men. Uh, my name is Ian Rowe, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, I'm Nike Fajors, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. Hey, Nike. Uh, great to see you. Uh, you're just back from an amazing uh, vacation in the Sudan. Uh, very nice. Um, and uh, back to uh, seeing all of our uh, viewers who know that we love to showcase some pretty incredible men that uh, maybe you don't get a chance to see. And today we have the uh, pleasure of having Barry Johnson join us. Hey, Barry, how are you? Hey, good afternoon. Nice to uh, be here. Nice to see you guys. All right, so good. So Barry, I don't think I've ever met anyone who has described themselves as a possibilitist. I love that. I love that, that you have been on an improbable journey through throughout your life that you're gonna tell us about um, through the public sector, private sector, um, quite a journey that we can't wait to hear. Uh, but let's start at your more humble beginnings where you were born in Alabama. Yeah. And um, you're, you're, you're in Miami Beach right now. <laughs> so describe to us, what was it about those early years in Alabama with your family that helped shape and chisel you uh, in a way that your mindset is all about possibility? Well, that's a very interesting question. And um, how much time do you have? So I grew, up, <laughs> I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. I was born in 62. So you can imagine like the time frame and the place should invoke a kind of a idea of a lot of transformation, transi uh, transition, a lot of civil rights struggle and the aftermath of that. Um, a lot of division, a lot of hope at the same time. And I was born into a family where my parents were the first in their generations to go to college. And what that did was painted a really bright picture of what the data tells us about what happens when you go to college. It opens a lot of interesting pathways of opportunity and exposure and uh, it takes down certain silos that prevent people from tapping into greater possibilities. So my parents had two agendas, in essence, with the kids. I had two older sisters, two and four years old. And I, you know, they never quite said this, but the, but the behaviors told me this, that they had a commitment that we would remain very aware and grounded in our family, like where they came from. And so we visited often my grandmothers and my, you know, my cousins and everybody who still lived on the same streets where my parents had grown up, the same wow. neighborhoods, right? Wow. In the working class, you know, that, that salt of the earth kind of humble, hardworking people without a whole bunch of means, but a lot of love and a lot of resilience. So that was where we spent a lot of time. On the other hand, my parents were, you know, committed to providing us opportunities that they didn't have. 
So there was a violin. We had to go to violin studies. We did swim. We did take swimming lessons and tennis lessons and do all the things that they thought were in some ways, like they got to live vicariously through us, right? right. Because they didn't have right. these things. It sort of created two worlds. For me, what it established was a theme that I think has really uh, carried me on my journey now that I've been in seven, 70 countries around the world over the course of 58 years. It's a foot in each world. It's a theme. There was a, a, a writer, an African-American female writer called, I think it was Lynetta McCain. She wrote, wrote for, the, for the Chicago Tribune and she wrote a story that was published posthumously. It was a sad story where she committed suicide. And her issue was that she coined this term that I saw, which is living a foot in each world. For right. her, it was a very turbulent and difficult experience from which she did not, through which she didn't survive, right? She chose to end her life behind it. For me, it was equally challenging and turbulent sometimes, but it was also very eye-opening and it created a great love of difference and a great love of contrast for me. And it also gave me this sense of my purpose on the planet in some way to move fluidly between different environments, but also to be the one to know when you actually bridge things, when you wow. become a connector, a bridge, a harmonizer, an introducer, which is really one of the themes of the planet, right? Part of our issues are that we don't know each other, trust each other, understand each other, because we have, but we always have ideas about each other. The sad thing is that those ideas come from stories that someone else tells us, right? not from our lived stories, which often will give us very different understandings about things. So were you, uh, when you were growing up, was your, when you were sort of living in these two different worlds, who was your peer group? And did you find yourself clashing or did you find yourself you were able to find um peers that also were navigating uh both worlds like how, how did that how did that um play out so it's interesting what i really realized is there were two or three worlds because there was a world of african-american people who were more socioeconomically let's say less exposed and less invited and then I existed in a world of African-Americans because we still live in an all African-American neighborhood, but it tended to be the teacher, the principal, the, the dentist, the, yeah. you know, whatever. So there was like this kind of different world. So you're navigating two aspects of African-American existence. And then there was the world of like all of the European-American people you know, the Anglo-Americans where all of this violin stuff was happening, you know, where all of the swimming lessons and the tennis was happening. And so it was really this continuum I felt, and a lot of times it created conflict, but I think I was just wired to move fairly seamlessly between the two. And I realized at some later point that there was, it was almost like a game for me because I didn't pick or choose. I just accepted, which is exactly what I do now. I recognize and just accept the coexistence of all of these things that may look, live, act, love, pray differently, but we're all a part of the ecosystem of intentionality. Like none of it is a mistake. All the differences are intentional. And if you actually began to appreciate difference, which is what I encourage people that I mentor to do, to see difference not as a problem, but difference as a 
actually it's not a flaw it's a design feature and if you actually understand it the right way you can actually create genius out of it so in birmingham this is like i wasn't thinking quite this way when i was seven eight nine years old but i was very aware of differences and i was fascinated and we had a map in the bedroom in my bedroom and i think maybe my sister did too but it was the map of the world and so mm -hmm. i always had this idea that this is not all there is there's much right. more beyond this wow and i think again that's hope right People don't need to necessarily have possession of the other thing. They simply have to know that there is an other thing, that it does exist, and there's a possibility for me to actually touch that. So then, Barry, tell us, what was it like when you first left, not only Birmingham, but you left the country, given that you visited 70 over the course of your, your time on this planet? So, <clears throat> a funny story, depends on which leaving the country um, you're talking about. So we had cousins who lived in California because, you know, during the great migration out, you know, a lot of folks left. So some of my uncles and aunts left and went to LA and we would go to LA some summers. We would drive the long ride across, you know, Texas for two days, it seemed and all that. But we would get to LA and my cousins would take me out of the country, which was the Tijuana, Mexico. Okay. <laughs> drive down, and I would come back and tell people, I've traveled internationally, like one <laughs> out of the country. <laughs> um, you know, so that was, you know, that was one thing. You go to Tijuana, Mexico and get some tacos for two cents a piece and then come back across the border an hour later. That was my first international experience. But I did when I was, I think in, in 10th or 11th grade, I spent a summer in France studying. And it's, though it seems like sort of elegant and all this stuff, and it was hard rock because I remember telling my parents, at that time I was going to this private school and I was the first African-American male to go to this school. It'd been around for probably 80 years, nestled off in the hills of wherever. And, um, and when I went to the school, I realized some interesting stuff, which is that these wealthy kids around me, I, I connected to them, but I also knew like, in more than one case, I knew somebody who was like to, the maid to one of the families in the school that I was in. Wow. And one of them in one case was a relative. And so you started to see what is really the inevitable coming together of the world. We think we're separate, but we never are. And so, you know, one of those things is very, very interesting. For me, um, it sparked something. Like there was some kind of interesting compassion around it. And I also it was the first time that I felt like really sensed how um, odd my journey really was. I mean, I just thought this is strange. Like. I just don't think people normally have this experience. And I started to examine at that point, like, what is this journey I'm on? I always realized I was an odd person. I really have always felt like I didn't fit in and not in a way that like, it's not a soft story. I mean, it's just, I never really fit into any one thing. <clears throat> and I probably still don't. I'm probably odd to most people. <laughs> and that's okay too, because I think the outliers have a role to play because we can bridge. We learn how to navigate because we don't have a comfort space. We have to actually move between all of these spaces. Yep. 
So I don't know. That's the, um, then, then I went to France that year um, from that school because the French teacher, I guess they had a, a trip every year and you go to study for like six weeks, you get to travel to all these different cities. <clears throat> and that's all great, except my parents just writing a check to go to France for six weeks, you know, and be chauffeured around and everything was like, it wasn't like, oh, okay, no problem. And so I became a little bit of an entrepreneur to do that. My dad had been, had had a medical issue that almost took his life. He ended up getting a bunch of plants. This is during the time that house plants became a big thing. So my parents had all these plants. My dad lived, the plants lived and grew. I had the bedroom facing the South. So all the plants were in the room. So I discovered that I had this kind of green thumb. My father also decided he was into organic gardening. Now this is literally in this is years ago before organics were very key. So my dad actually built next to his organic garden, a greenhouse for me, which wow. became like a laboratory and a wow. library for me. Very strange. Again, you talk about strange African-American kid in Birmingham, Alabama, and now I have a greenhouse. <laughs> I had the greenhouse that my dad literally designed and built. He studied about what greenhouses needed to do. They had fans and electric and light and heating. And this is, you know, this is, you know, no luck's going on. But my dad decided either I was going to destroy the hardwood floors with all the plants in the water or he could build a greenhouse, which actually became an entrepreneurial business for me to sell plants that funded my study to France. But of course, I didn't tell anybody because a guy growing plants back then, you know, it's a whole thing of what that meant to whom. But it was functional for me. It was also... Um, it grounded my fundamental respect and relationship to nature as well. <clears throat> and, and this idea of cultivation, you know, and how plants and nature can be a healing place. Yeah. You know? You know, Barry, I just want to provide some commentary on a few of the things you said. You know, kind of your introduction of yourself, I just, I, I kept thinking about America. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, at HBS, they call it a delicate experiment. I always call America a delicate experiment. And as you were articulating your journey, your philosophy, your view of the world, it just felt, for me, really uniquely American in terms of fitting in in so many places. And, you know, someone, I was, I was chatting with someone when I was in Sudan recently, and, they, and um, um I referenced a, a story that my son told me, and you know, it, it was it was in a it was a, a Thomas Sowell reference, but it was talking about the Europeans and why in the 15th, 16th century they were so successful. Well, when you looked at them, you know, they had gunpowder from China, they had uh, a rudder from India, they had you know, literally everything they had in their armament was taken from the world. And the comparison was to the indigenous native people of Latin America, the Inca, the Maya, who were a very advanced people, but who had no chance because their isolation, you know, didn't allow them to take advantage of all these incredible things of the world. And so as you are articulating your journey, I just think about you've had the privilege to take advantage of all these different aspects of the world and incorporate it into into who you are. It's really, really magnificent. Just one other point, you know, as you talked about being kind of unique and different, Ian, you, you know, a number of our guests 
have referenced that as well. You know, the, the path less followed and just how they've looked at the world. I, I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, you know, John uh, at, at Columbia writing in, I mean, he talked about how he felt different as a young man. I just, uh, very common theme. Well, you know, so one question, Barry, in terms of, because I know a fair amount about your corporate background, um, which, which we didn't even get into in your introduction, but I think about Disney and I think about BET. And uh, just want to get your perspective on those two content enterprises. What, what did each do well? What could one teach the other? What did you learn from those two, two your experience with both of them? Right, so interesting. Um, I'll start with Disney. So how I ended up at Disney is really important. So remember I told you I was on a path to being a professional violinist. I actually was. I had gone to a fine arts school for a while and around the point where I would have been interviewing to go to Oberlin or Juliet or one of these kinds of places, I skipped out on a trip that I was supposed to make to Juliet or one of them in New York. And I went to uh, Yale to visit a friend and who had been in music and had opted out as well. And that person really kind of inspired me to be a bit of a renegade and said that, you know, you can tell your stories, you can make the expression of art, you can apply that and do that in ways that don't necessarily appear to be about the art. Mm -hmm. And I always remember that. So when I went, when I left Yale, I ended up going to Yale and I went to Wall Street and did the two or three years on the street, you know, investment banking, and then got into Harvard because that's just what you did, you applied, you know, you were on this almost like prescribed. Right. Yep. So I got to Harvard and finished. I don't want to go back to investment banking. I know I don't. But it occurred to me that what would happen if I intersected my business training with the world of creative expression, with mm -hmm. the world of storytelling? And what happens if you brought better management principles to that and brought more creative heart into business? So it could be this actual, you know, this change because Business is not typically very contemplative, and we don't tend to think about um, the softer part of of living living um, effectively and successfully into business. There's a lot of talk about it now, right? A yeah. lot of talk about it. There are courses sure. about it, and in fact, people are have degrees around it. I've read in some places around contemplative leadership. Um, but that's how I ended up at Disney. It was a part of an experiment for myself about how I could tap back into what, because I always knew, and I even say now that I'm a creative that pretends to be a business person and an economic diplomat and an economic developer. But at core, I'm actually groomed to be a creator and a person of the earth. So Disney was my opportunity to go and prove that to myself. And it was great except that it wasn't because the first week that i got there i originally i was hired by the head of all of disney production tv animation and and film to be an associate producer mm. at disney that lasted about two days when i essentially was cornered by five guys and girls who basically said we're going to destroy your career 
you have no chance of being successful here. Whoa. Because we're going to undermine you at every turn. Oh, my gosh. You have come here with your elitist Harvard stuff and Yale and taken a job that was ours. Wow. Wow. Good luck. (laughs) So, So that was my introduction to Hollywood and Disney. I must tell you, I had worked at Disney for a summer before working for the same guy and had even helped Disney plan a foray into the Soviet Union and got Harvard to allow me to actually take three weeks off, which had never been done. I was told by Dean McCarthy at the time, what you're asking has never been done. I basically said, I need three weeks out in the middle of the school year of second year in order to go to the Soviet Union with all the Disney leadership to figure out commerce there and to do this film festival in multiple cities. And they were like, no, you've lost your mind. And I convinced them that there would be business learning value. And I could <laughs> be careful what you ask for because they let me do it. But all of the professors said I had to develop some project or do a study that sure. related to their subject of the class I was late. So basically I took on three like giant projects, but I did leave for three weeks. And in fact, during that three weeks, I one of the professors said, there's this guy called Dennis Hightower, who's the president oh, yeah. of Disney Europe at the time. Yes. If he's on that trip, you have to interview him with enough data to, for me to do a, a case study on him. So that trip Dennis was on, I had to get up every morning at five o'clock and interview Dennis for like an hour for three weeks. And a case study was written on Dennis that I was. I studied it at, at HBS. I studied the. That's how that case study came to be because yeah. I took three weeks off of Harvard. But the point is, so I was known to Disney and that was partly what led me to getting this job that I was wanted, that was offered by some and rejected by others, my peers. And basically I was told by the person who hired me, um, we'll deal with it and just go home for the weekend, we'll figure it out. I got a call on Sunday night that said, come to work tomorrow with a suit. And I'm thinking, what? So when I came in with the suit, I was told to go to the president's office, that I had to go and talk to Frank Wells, who was Michael Eisner's partner to turn Disney around. And I interviewed with him and a guy called Art Levitt, who was the son of the SEC chair at the time. Right. Wow. And I became the, I don't know, manager of corporate special projects for Disney. Like all of it, I went from being an associate producer to this guy. Now, the reason I tell the story and I like to tell the story is a couple of things. One, the, the, the journey of life is a journey of being flexibly focused, right? You don't know what's coming and that you got to be okay with that because sometimes wonderful things will come out of the unseen and unforeseen. But at the same time, it's kind of like how perspectives can really derail, you know, a particular pathway. So these guys and girls had a particular perspective on me. And part of the reason they had the perspective on me is that no one bothered to prepare them in their ignorance and in their, their, non-exposure really right to what it meant for me to be there 
like I could have partnered with them in a way that may have accelerated their rise to the top. But they just had this idea. I was different. It's reject, reject, kill, kill, which is an interesting thing. I go back to Birmingham. I'd laugh. I was talking to my mom about this the other day. Like, I'm obsessed with this idea of embracing things that are different. So I remember when I was growing up in Birmingham, if a snake was found in the basement or anywhere else, a woman would scream, men would come from every direction with every hammer, implement, hoe, rake, axe, pick and shovel. And they wouldn't stop until the snake had died a thousand lives. And in an interesting way, I think that we humans, that that does that, that, that perspective and that activity doesn't just work with snakes. It works with everything we don't like and understand. But the snake has a role in the ecosystem. We took every snake off the planet, we'd all die. And so I really try to think about how I invite people again, it's that that thing of the, the power of difference to make a positive difference. Don't tolerate things, don't just put up with things, it's about embracing difference and seeing what you can learn about yourself and the other thing. That was a long way of telling you that the way to Disney was non-traditional. And once I got there, it was a fascinating, unexpected journey. If you had told me that I was not gonna be a film producer, like literally by now, I thought I would have a lot of Academy Awards. It just, but that just, it's like a sudden two day shift and it was off to starting new businesses in Disney. Their record label, their non-children's pop rock record label that signed the Queen catalog and pop star. I was on the team to start that company up. And then I became this guy who sort of helped start up things in other companies, which is how I ended up eventually getting to Microsoft BET joint venture and running that thing, right? Because again, it was one of these startups, partnerships. That's how that came to be. Fascinating, and I, I I didn't have any of that history, but I knew that you'd worked for the the president of Disney. But the story is so much more interesting and so much more compelling. My goodness, and it's also tragic. It's beautiful and it's tragic too. I mean, there's some deep sorrow in those stories. You know what I mean? Because basically, what you had operating, and this is what people just assume. They they think, wow, your life must have been fixed. You went to Yale. You went to Harvard. And I say, actually, I honestly believe that because of those double degrees, I've had an arrow on my back since I got the second one. And I think I have been submitted to unimaginable targeting. Did you feel, did you feel, because it's so interesting, when I went to Harvard, I felt in a way liberated from expectation because I went to work for Teach for America right after uh, business school. And... And um, so it's interesting. I think some people think, oh, my God, I now that I have a double degree, I'm supposed to go do this kind of job. I'm supposed to have this kind of life. Did you feel that, which is why you felt you had to go into like a Disney or these uh, enterprises versus being free to do whatever you wanted to? Because, you know, you could always fall back and get a real job, given that you had these. You know. I mean, well, to be clear, I mean, I always felt a little bit of that I was self-determining. 
I've always had this sense. I mean, when I left the fine arts school and went to the private school, I orchestrated that. I came home and told my parents, I mean, after Christmas break, when I changed in the middle of the year, I was like, oh, I'm not going there tomorrow. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I'm going to a different place. And they're like, what is that? And I'm like explaining, they'd never even heard of it, even though it's five miles from where I grew up. Yeah. I have always been self-determining in a way. When I went to Disney, I was pretty clear that I was going to make half of what everybody else graduating from my class was making, which meant my student loans were going to go twice as long at least. But I was always more interested in things that interested me than things that um, made me acceptable to other people. Because I kind of felt like I'm not acceptable to anyone anyway, because I really didn't fit in well anywhere. I was like a little bit of a misfit. So, um, <clears throat> but at the same time, I had the gift of being able to connect with people and get along with anybody. Yeah. Which, you know, in a weird way, is a paradox, right? It says you don't fit in, and yet I can get along with people better than the average person can. So, you know, I just, I just went with it. You know, part of me was flowing. There's part of me, I think, that was a little bit. I liked taking the road less traveled by a little bit. We were in that first wave, Nike, as you know. There weren't a lot of MBAs in going to Hollywood at the time. Are you kidding? And that was part of what that friction and that 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 rejection and denial was in part about. Wait a minute, this Harvard, Yale, and African American guy is coming in here to take this job. They probably thought I'm done for. Like, what chance do I have? He's going to show me up and show me out, which is part of what I think happens even now to me, you know, in the roles that I've had with some very esteemed family offices, which is the world I've operated in in the last few years, ultra high net worth families where, boy, you know, <laughs> you come and there is a cohort. I always tell people, so just to be clear. If you want to work with me, here's what's about to happen. Members of your close clan are going to call you into a room and give you every reason why you need to get rid of me quickly. Like <laughs> I'm telling you. And if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, I will buy you anything you want, even something I can't afford. But it's never not happened. And it always happens because you're different and you're presumably competent and don't show confidence then you're elitist, you know, like just so arrogant. As someone said to me, you always talk like, you, like you're talking to people from Harvard. And I said, well, how do people from Harvard who talk to people from Harvard talk? Like, <laughs> like you talk. <laughs> like, can you give me an example? Because I really want to get better at communicating. Like, just give me an example. That memo you sent the other day, literally this happened in the last two years. Hello. And, the, and, the, and I said, please just give me any example of it. You said incentives. Literally, this happened. You said, see this, you said incentives. I said, well, what would you have had me say? Because I'm happy to change it. I want to be able to communicate better. I, I don't know. We'll, we'll, I'll have to get, but just, just, you just got to remember, not everybody went to Harvard. Okay. So, you know, it's the thing where I... I, I would love to do research on this. So I have a theory because I have a number of my particularly African-American male friends who have gone, who have Ivy League degrees, but didn't go to an Ivy League undergraduate. 
And if they went to an HBCU or a school of lesser kind of status, I find that they tend to have an easier way. Like I've tried to compare my, and I, cause I honestly believe people think that there's this place that protects them from, from, they can say, oh, he just went to that school. Oh, well, he only went there. So yeah, he's got a Harvard degree, but he didn't go here. But the fact that I had Yale and Harvard, I swear, I think it's created so many uphill climbs for me. And I've had people kind of tell me that. So that's an interesting thing about <clears throat> what it means to go to these places. I mean, it may be a strategy not to, in some cases, <laughs> to do a double Ivy League degree. <clears throat> First time I've heard that, but it, it certainly registers because I went to a blue collar school undergrad and I haven't experienced what you've experienced. At the same time, though, I'm always very careful when I meet people for the first time to, frankly, be more humble than I otherwise am. To not drop the H-bomb. Don't drop well, it. Well, certainly not that, but even just like, just little things. Like, I always just think, well, let me get coffee for this person. Because they'll be like, oh, wow. Because they know I went to school. They'll be like, wow, he got coffee for me. <laughs> but that's so you anyway, though, Nike. You uh, a hundred percent you so we've got a segment of the podcast Barry, that we call the speed round where we're going to ask you um we're going to position to you a couple of individuals or philosophies and ask you to pick which you which you prefer and why um and really eager to hear your thoughts i'm going to start with an easy one that's specific to you in the conversation we just had harvard or yale yale and the reason I got a sense because I, when I was at Harvard Business School, I actually lived amongst the undergrads. And at the time I was only 23 when I did that. So I was pretty close in age to like the cohort. And my sense was that people at Harvard are damn pleased to be them. I mean, they really, <laughs> they're really like, yeah, I like this. I like myself and I'm all of that. And the Yale people are more, at least when I was there, they tended to be, um, or at least to pretend to be less polished and kind of more rough and tumble. They were more like sort of felt a little more organically preppy than they were kind of like polished Harvard stuff. And the other thing is Yale was in New Haven, Connecticut, which didn't offer, let's say, a whole lot of wonderful in-town activities. So things were very insular and you had only each other to depend on. So the, mm -hmm. the campus felt more close-knit and the experience felt more intimate than Harvard did to me. Picasso or Elon Musk? <laughs> I will always choose art over the humans, even though the humans make the art. I, I yeah, I would say Picasso only because I like um, abstract art, art. And I also um, like um, artistic expression. I mean, Elon Musk, fascinating, but I, I picked the Picasso. I understand. Uh, Malcolm or Martin? Uh, I would say Malcolm. I would you say gotta, Malcolm. you got to give us the why on that one. 
<clears throat> I like when Malcolm, I like the fact that Malcolm's journey involved a great international outreach and engagement and that he went far and he came back with a really big open expression about all people being his brothers and sisters. And I think he was more overtly um, um, an advocate for us support, like sort of being internal. I think that integration, the way that it actually worked out was a big problem in some way. And I know I'm not, I, I, I arouse a lot of angst when I talk about this, but I think we got sold a little bit of a bill of goods and I think it was intentional. I think people absolutely knew that when you actually cause people to want the other thing, you literally cause people to undo themselves. And there was a great drain, which we have not recuperated from. And I think it also shows up. And as I began to more understand about, <clears throat> you know, at some point it was about, we want our, we want our, we want equal, we want as nice as streets, we want good schools, we want top-notch materials and books and things. And that's where I think Malcolm was more that about that, um, as opposed to saying, give us access to those over there. Maybe you do it, but here's, here's, here's the experience that I'm more aligned with the, with the work of um, the outcomes from Malcolm's important work my sister was one of the first people to go to a public school in Birmingham. So the integration, remember, integration is interesting, right? It's one way. That's right. Two way. They didn't say we're going to bring them over here and integrate them with you. No, we're going to send you over to where you're not wanted, where you're not affirmed, where right. you're not magnified. <clears throat> and my sister spent the first week or two eating her lunch in a bathroom stall because she was so uncomfortable to be in the lunchroom where people were very, very mean to her. Wow. So I, that, even that will bring a tear. I just came, but can you imagine a 14 year old girl feeling more comfortable eating lunch in a bathroom stall oh, where her teacher found her would always wonder, where does Marsha go? It's just stunning, right? <clears throat> and so my belief is around um, internal sufficiency. I really wish we hadn't been shipped away. I wish we'd been left to do our own thing and not to send great teachers away, rewarding them, but stripping them out of the African-American community, I think was all very well played by people who wanted to see us go down. Well, and then that'll close with our last question in the speed round, civil rights or economic development? That is an unfair choice because they go right together and you know that. I'm sure I'm not the first person that said that. <laughs> no, you're not. Yeah, it's, I mean, if I, if you, if you made me force choose one or the other one, I would say economic development <clears throat> because economic development, if done properly, orchestrates itself in compliance with really good civil rights activity. So, um, I mean, if economic development is what it's supposed to be, which is supposed to be inclusive, it's supposed to engage across, it's supposed to seek the better opportunities, which are inherently going to be by joining things that are different, 
by breaking silos and causing kind of what I would call kind of a integration of things for greater outcomes. At least that's the way I as an economic development developer think about economic development. And the work that I'm doing now as, you know, and I don't know if we talked about this, but I'll give you two seconds because it's really, I'd like to leave your audience thinking about it. So I found myself advising very, very wealthy families as a result of my work with the Obama administration, where I went around the world and helped to bring businesses into the United States. A lot of those businesses coming were backed by wealthy families. So what I realized is that they didn't just want to help to bring the businesses in. They had agendas for their own families and their family wealth and growth. And they wanted me to help them in ways that a government official could not. When I left the administration, I could help them in different ways. And so I became an advisor to international families and eventually domestic families as well, increasingly with their next generations who are poised to inherit this money and who are asking questions like, how do we make our money? And what damage do we do when we do it? And what are we doing with our money and our influence and our social capital that's either making the world the way it is in its bad state or is it helping it? So out of that, I ended up realizing I sit in weird rooms with, again, improbable but extraordinary access to the one thing that we we miss greatly in the greater America, which is the flow of capital to more people in more places. If you think of it as a garden, you want the garden to grow and bloom and prosper and do the multiplier effect of prosperity. It will if you water it all. But if you only water four cities, two states and five zip codes and one ethnicity and one gender, then you're going to end up with this deeply um, unmanifested potential. And that's where we are. So I realized that and I began to work with families. I've got four ultra wealthy families that are backing me now and the GP and the seed round to start a fund. The fund will in some ways function as a fund of funds, investing in uh, management, um, investing in GPs of uh, funds and managers who are of, of color and women but also it will make direct investments and co-investments as well. And the idea here is to move these, to help the people who are the ultimate wealth holders, who are often not explained by those they entrust to allocate their capital. These people don't explain that there are great returns to be gotten from diverse people. There are great returns, plus you get great social impacts that it really is a great business proposition and it is a great um, citizen social impact opportunity. So now that I have the ear, they understand it. We have lots of data and research from Paul Gumpers and others at Harvard and other institutions that actually show how heterogeneity works to create better returns and social impact. So now I've got them agreeing that they'll move large sums of funds through us so that we can actually move them to activate this opportunity that is everywhere in America spread, it's simply not fueled by capital and attention and love and caring and contemplative support. So that's what I'm doing. Brilliant. And I, yeah. So brilliant. Wow, that's incredibly exciting. Uh, I mean, that's a whole separate discussion in terms of what you're doing there, but we'll be obviously watching very closely. Ian, you want to bring us home, brother? 
Uh, well, Barry, thank you for sharing the information about your new fund, because I did, I wanted to ask you about what you were doing, so that would be very illuminating. Um, and it actually is connected because you're building something for the future. You have this vision for what you want to accomplish in, in this next stage of your life. And I want you to go back to you at 16, um, as we shared, you know, Nike and I created this whole idea of the invisible man to speak to young people who didn't know that you exist or they, they, or they, they live in a world where they're not hearing enough about the Barry Johnsons of the world. And I was just wondering what you, what kind of advice would you give to that Daryl, the 16 year old black kid living in forgotten USA, this imaginary urban city. And he's trying to figure out, you know, how do I make my way in the world? It's not that I want to make a lot of money or anything like that just, or maybe you do, but what is, what is the thing? What's the advice to him, especially given the current narrative about the prospects for young black men? So I would tell him, I'm gonna give you a couple of tips. Um, some are gonna sound kind of hocus pocusy and some are gonna sound very grounded. So I'm gonna start with the grounded ones actually listen to all the people who told you to stay in school and work very hard get good grades treat people well do a little bit more than you're asked uh, before you're even asked to do it like literally take that initiative that when you're doing that you're sowing these seeds and they will bear fruit they just always do maybe not immediately but just if you work hard study hard treat people nicely <clears throat> you know take care of yourself take care of others there's an incredible effect of giving and receiving that you're a part of a dynamic that's actually universal law that cannot be broken so do that the other thing that i would say is that life is lived from the inside out. It's an inside game. There is nothing that you can see, touch, own, even yourself that didn't start with a thought and an idea. Nothing, not the shirt, not the glasses, not the shoes, nothing that you can see in the material world was not first an idea. Wow. And it, the idea was held by some ordinary people really ordinary people who are probably more ordinary than you. They probably have a lesser IQ than you, and they probably may even have less support than you think you have. So the thing to do is spend time visioning, spend time getting the feeling of the wish fulfilled, they call it. Have an idea, have a dream. I go, <clears throat> sometimes I used to do it more when I was in the Obama team, I would go to high schools or colleges and do grad speeches or um, honors day or whatever. And I would often, I would bring a couple of people to the stage and I would say, okay, here's a $20 bill. You got 10 seconds to tell me five things you don't like, don't want, can't stand, can't abide, you know, just the, you know, the worst. You, you can do it in 10 seconds, name five, you get the $20. I always gave the $20 away, always. Because people always know what, what <laughs> they don't want and what they don't like and who they don't like. Right. Now, I would, put, I would put a $50 bill and call two people to the stage and say, you have 
15 seconds to tell me five things you want to do, be, have, experience, or possess. And they would get wide-eyed and be like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) And never, ever, ever, (laughs) ever win the money. Right. Why? Because we go around knowing what we don't like, knowing who we don't like, we spend so little time pre-preparing what we actually want. I hate this job. Which job do you love? Which would you want to have? I don't like that thing. I, what would it be? It's the whole thing in politics. You know, people can complain, but they never have a substitute. Right. Life rewards you when you know what it is you want. So I would tell the 16-year-old, spend some time figuring out what you want and dwell there. It's amazing. You read the Goethe, the philosopher Goethe is accredited with that thing. Just begin it now. It's a fabulous paragraph. If you haven't haven't read it, it basically said whatever you want, whatever you think you want, whatever you want to do, begin it now. Because boldness has genius and it unleashes all of this stuff that comes to meet you to accomplish the end. Wow. Wow. Your brilliance will be met with opportunity. Boldness connects to genius wow barry that was inspiring thank you very much you well as i say anytime i have these conversations you know who it's for right it's to remind (laughs) (laughs) hey you know sometimes the the most sometimes you're talking to yourself to keep i'm always talking to myself so i always say thank you for allowing me to come to speak to yourself and to me so that i can go and carry on my journey yeah hello hello Well, Barry Johnson, the possibilitist, thank you very much for joining us. This has been so great. And for our audience, thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can watch any episode at www.invisible.men. Nike, as always, good to see you. Yes, my brother. Yeah. So, Barry, I got to tell you, you know, the, I, I know the, the, the burden uh, of, of the of the dual degrees. But, you know, when I met you in 87, um, you know, those dual degrees really created a reality for me that was incredibly exciting. Um, you know, and I just admired so much about what you represented. So whatever that burden may have been, I'm sure I'm one of hundreds of young people that you crossed paths with um, and had, had real impact on. Because obviously our, our viewers can see what kind of a special human being you are um, and your energy uh, is, is, is truly unique. So I just want to thank you, you know, that, that how old was I? I was, uh, 20 years old um, at that time. And that 20-year-old Nike certainly wants to say thank you for spending time with me and, and, uh, and sharing, because I never, I certainly never forgot our, our, our time together. So thank you, brother. That's so meaningful to hear that. That's really moving. Thank, um, you know, you, you never know what impressions you're making. Absolutely. <clears throat> so Absolutely. you try to do your best and be your best. So thank you, brother. Your best. All thank right, you. Barry. Thank you. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube 
or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 